I think we have to get better at, at understanding the effects that certain foods have on us, that some foods just lock us into this desire to keep eating. And I think it's important if you can understand the way food affects you, you can start to avoid the ones that take you to a bad place. Hey guys, welcome back to the Digest This Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Ugardi. On today's episode, I'm joined by Mark Schatzker. He is an award-winning writer based in Toronto and is the author of The Dorito Effect and his most recent book, The End of Cravings. On this episode, we cover obesity in the USA, the real reason people crave food, what's in food that makes us crave it, and why most Americans are not satiated, and so much more. You guys do not want to miss this episode. If you want a free Vitamix blender, then listen up. During the entire month of October, I am giving away a brand new Vitamix, which is the same one you see me use in my Instagram stories every single day. This $400 blender is used in top restaurants all over the world and in the world's largest coffee chain. If you want one, all you have to do is subscribe to my newsletter. That's it. I send out helpful tips for digestion, easy recipes, and fun food finds I discover. So pause this episode and go to littlesipper.com slash subscribe and enter your email and I'll be choosing the winner from there. And if you're not the lucky person, you're still getting free recipes, food facts, and grocery finds I discover. Plus, you don't want to miss my holiday gift guide coming up this holiday season. And information in my newsletter is exclusive and is not available on my actual website. And I never sell or give out your email to any third party. I am the only one who has access to it just to send out helpful information to better your life. So be sure you're in the running to get a free Vitamix. Pause this episode and go to L-I-L-S-I-P-P-E-R dot com slash subscribe and enter your email. I'll also leave that link in today's show notes so you can just go easily tap that and it'll take you right to it. And for double the chances to win a Vitamix, you can also submit a rating and review for this podcast in whatever podcast app you listen in. That's right. I'll also be choosing someone who rates and reviews this podcast to get a free Vitamix. After submitting your rating and review, just DM me a screenshot on Instagram. Did you know low magnesium levels make vitamin D ineffective? And up to 50% of the US population is magnesium deficient. Magnesium also plays many other crucial roles in the body, such as supporting muscle and nerve function, as well as energy production and sleep regulation. And because our soil is so depleted, our foods are obtaining less and less of it, which trickles down to us humans getting less and less of it from the foods we eat. My holistic doctor told me to start taking magnesium, but I wanted to make sure I was getting the right kind as there are several different types and forms and some are not as effective and as bioavailable as others. I tried multiple pills from different brands and didn't see much of a difference in my sleep specifically. Then Ned came out with a new and improved formulation of their Naked Magnesium Powder. 
This new formulation contains no sweeteners, no flavorings, and no gums. And since I already was a fan of their CBD, I decided to give their Naked Magnesium Powder a try. The very first night, I noticed a difference in my sleep. Not only did I fall asleep quicker, but I stayed asleep through the night. And the best part is that I didn't wake up groggy the next morning. That was about four months ago, and I haven't turned back since. So if you are looking for a magnesium supplement, and I think everyone should be taking magnesium for some function in their body... May I strongly recommend Ned's Naked Magnesium Powder. I have full confidence this will benefit your sleep and ultimately your life. So become the best version of yourself and get 15% off Ned products with code DIGEST. Go to helloned.com slash digest or enter code DIGEST at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O ned.com slash digest to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering my listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Thank you, Mark, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah. So you, you just came out with your book, uh, the end of craving, and it talks so many, like so so much about a different, like why we are craving things the way that we do, and um, I want to kind of dive in to a few topics that I feel like a lot of people should know. First of all, um, by twenty thirty, it's said that half people are going to be obese in America. Yeah, that sounds about right. It was about 42%, I think, the last time the CDC delivered their official statistics, and that was before the pandemic, and we know that things are, are getting worse, so that right. that makes sense. It might even happen sooner than that. Yeah, yeah. And so why do you think, why do you think that is? It's, it's the million-dollar question. What is it that is making so many people eat so much food? And, and this was really the burning question at the heart of this book. My, my previous book, The Dorito Effect, looked at how the flavor of food has changed. We, we tend to be obsessed with nutrients, but we, we seem to forget that eating is a very pleasurable, very sense-heavy act. It's a, it's a real experience to eat food, and we like to do it. Um, and the, the medium of that, the currency of that experience is flavor, and that's changed a great deal. And I talked about, for example, how you know we something like Doritos, um, we've created that flavor. That's a flavor that doesn't exist in nature. Uh, it's an imitation of real food. And so much of our food is now an imitation. And I think that is gives us the impulse to eat. It literally creates foods we wouldn't otherwise eat. Another example would be something like soft drinks. Um, we say that the, these sugary beverages is the sugar, but is it really? Because if I gave you a can of soda water with sugar in it, would you drink it? Probably not. It's the flavoring that makes it taste like Dr. Pepper or Coke or 7-Up. So flavor uh, plays such a big role in in how the brain relates to food on a on a deep level, but just on how we relate to it. But what I found is, um, I think that definitely plays a strong role in what makes people eat food they wouldn't otherwise eat. But I think there's something even deeper going on because what led me to pursue this question for the end of craving is that when we look at the neuroimaging, um, we find, you know, there's this idea that we're all kind of a bunch of normal brains in this food environment where we're just being overly tempted um, it, it, that, that the food is just too delicious 
and we can't restrain ourselves. But what we find is that we see brain differences in people with obesity. And it's not that they enjoy food too much. This is the stigma. This is the knock against people with obesity that they indulge themselves. They don't know when to say no. What we find is that the difference that we see is in their motivation to eat, is in literally they experience a craving to eat. So if you think of two brains, one is trim, one is obese. It's not the taste of a milkshake that makes the person with obesity overindulge. It's the sight or the scent of the milkshakes. When they see it, it's that Pavlovian cue that makes them go, I have to have that. That just looks amazing. And then what's even so cruel about it is that they derive less enjoyment from it than someone without obesity. So this really reframes it as um as a dysfunction, that there's something wrong with the way the brain is relating to food. And that was what really set me on the course to to research this and, and to get at it, to, to explore this topic in a way that I don't think has been explored before. Interesting. So so does so can our brain actually control how we um, even store excess weight and can you explain a little bit more as well as the the connection between um, brain and weight loss versus um, weight gain as well? Is yeah. there a connection? No, there's there's a, a very strong connection. I, I would say one of the greatest myths of our eating culture and dietary culture is that we can decide how much we eat. Um, the whole idea that, you know, you or I or anyone can go on a diet is predicated on this idea that I can I can choose how much I'm going to eat the same way I can choose if I'm going to steer my car right or left um, or what shirt I'm going to put on in the morning. Well, I can decide how much food I'm going to eat. And that is just not true. Um, it feels true because you can do that, you know, at any given meal. You can decide I, I'm done eating now. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we find is that when we look at, at um, weight loss, when we look at dieting, well, all diets work, but just not for very long. Um, what, what happens is that diets work for about the first six to eight months. Um, the pounds start to melt away. People feel good. They get complimented. Their friends stop and say, you look great. You know, you've been working out. I've been dieting and everything's great. But then what happens is the brain kicks in. The brain exerts its force and says, I know you're losing weight. I want you to gain it back. And we experience that as hunger and as fatigue. And the pounds start to come back. And what happens is people blame themselves because they say, well, the diet was working. I'm the one that failed. But we know now that it is the brain that is exerting that influence. But here's what's also interesting. The brain also has the same influence against overindulgence, that that when scientists since the 1950s have been doing what they call overfeeding studies, they take people and they literally force them to eat a tremendous amount of food. And it turned out the first time a scientist tried this was with college students, didn't work. He he couldn't, you'd think college students are always hungry, um, they always want to eat, couldn't get them to overeat, had to do it in a prison. Even there, he had difficulty keeping the prisoners enrolled in the study because they found eating too much food is almost as miserable as being starved. So um, uh, it's again, once again, it's the brain regulating intake. The most interesting thing about these overfeeding studies is we find that when the studies come to an end and people do gain weight as much as they don't want to, they will gain weight. When the overfeeding stops, the pounds melt away. They lose the weight. So they snap back to their former weight the same way dieters snap back to their former weight. So scientists call this a set point. Um, and, you know, there, there's a lot of argument as to exactly how this works, but I think what is undeniable is that there is regulation of body weight being exerted by the brain. So this whole idea that I can go on a diet, that I can read this book and eat this food and, and control how much energy, you know, my energy intake and my energy output, is just not true. The brain 
there's a very deep part of our brain that controls this. And, you know, some of us can overcome this with willpower, but it's generally far more rare than we tend to believe. So interesting. So are you saying that each person has a set, quote, weight that they are comfortable uh, with or obtaining and and they're always going to revert back to that? Generally speaking, yes. Now that can change and it does change. And I mean, this is the burning question. You know, if you, if you look, if you look at photos from 50 years ago, from let's say the 1970s, you look at photos of like a, like Woodstock or something, a really big rock concert, or you look at pictures of people at the beach in California, it's stunning how thin all these bodies look from the modern perspective. Um, so I think what has changed is, is something is making, something has changed inside the brain that is making people want to eat so much food. And I think this is, this is the real head scratcher. What has changed? Um, I think we have a set point, And I think that has, something is changing so much about how the brain relates to food. Okay. And so do you think that, or I don't, what's to blame? Is it, is it the brain or is it the food? Well, it's both. I mean, it, it, no, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think the brain is being changed by the food. So, so I mentioned these studies in which they see that people with obesity have this extra desire to eat, um, that, they're, that they're, they're experiencing a stronger, you know, technically speaking, motivation, but let's call it what it is, desire, craving, lust, yearning. They really, really want to eat. I think the question you then have to ask is what could take a brain that um, up until you know, a handful of decades ago, most of the time did a pretty good job of keeping us at a reasonable weight. What could inflame this desire to eat to make so many people want to eat more food than they physiologically need to eat? Because it's also important to recognize that we tend to think of desires as being sort of indulgent and evil. But most of the time, the way desire works when it comes to physiology, the needs of the body, it's, it's right in keeping with bodily needs. If you start to overheat, you start to crave coolness. You want to turn on the air conditioning. You want to take off a sweater. Similarly, if you're cold, um, if you walk out you know, in a t-shirt on a really cold winter day, you start to crave warmth. And when you get back inside and where it's warm and toasty, you feel that pleasure of your body warming up. So, so the, the pleasures of the flesh are in tune with our bodily needs. So it becomes a real interesting question. Why have things gotten so out of whack with eating and how much extra energy we carry around? So what is in food that makes us crave it more than ever? Well, it's a, it's a complicated question. And I think what we have to do is look at our, the way the body measures. So, so um, we tend to think kind of the prevailing wisdom is that the, the brain is kind of this ogre, you know, forged in the stone age, constantly craving calories that, that we, you know, emerge from the womb on a lifelong ambition just to stuff ourselves silly. I think this is wrong on many levels. Um, if you look back at, at evolution, there's many reasons not to want it way too much. First of all, it's much harder to accelerate, much harder to decelerate, um, to pivot, to turn. There's more stress, more torsional stress in your joints. Uh, much harder to catch prey, much easier to become prey, and you're a much plumper choice prey when you're carrying too much weight. I think the other thing that people overlook is that, you know, we think of this idea like, oh, and, you know, in our evolutionary past, there was this constant threat a famine, and that we adjusted for that by constantly wanting to eat more food just to be, you know, just to, um, just in case. But this really doesn't make sense when you consider the fact that if you're carrying extra weight, let's say an extra 20, 30 pounds of, quote, insurance on your belly, 
it costs extra calories just to move all that weight around. So in this precarious environment where calories are so scarce, to carry around extra weight is actually um, a very inefficient way of being mindful of calories. It's like if gas were really expensive and you were carrying around this, you know, big trailer with all these, you know, tanks full of gas, you'd be burning a lot of gas just to carry all that around. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so the when we eat, we think of flavor and taste as this kind of frivolous sensation. But what it really is, is your brain measuring the amount of food that comes in your mouth. And it's important that your brain does this because it takes, oh, it takes a while, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to, to really start to metabolize the food you're eating. So your brain needs to get an idea of what's coming in as it's coming in. Because in our evolutionary past, we didn't have all, you know, you were not going to sit around for 40 minutes and say, eh, have I had enough to eat? Do I want a couple more bites or should I go do something else? That wasn't really an efficient way of doing something. Also, you could poison yourself doing that. So mm. it really makes sense to get a handle on what's coming in as it's coming in. So your brain is really good at measuring. It likes to measure, it likes to predict. To, to get a handle, I think, on how things have gone wrong, I wanna talk about an experiment. And it's a complicated one, but I think it's really important. Um, this was done by a professor at Yale named Dana Small. And she was asking what, what is on the surface a simple but important question. She wants to know, is it possible to create drinks that are just as satisfying and just as rewarding, but have fewer calories? And, you know, if we could do that, that might be a really good thing, because then we can drink all these rewarding drinks and not gain weight. The question is, how do you do that? And, and she's a neuroscientist. She came up with a really ingenious way of doing this. She created five distinct drinks. They all had their own color and their own flavor. She made them taste equally sweet using a, um, an artificial sweetener called sucralose. So they all tasted like they had 75 calories of, of sugar, all equally sweet. She then used a tasteless starch called maltodextrin to give each of these drinks a different calorie payload. So one of the drinks had no calories. One had 37 and a half, one had 75, one had 112, one had 150. So we've got these five drinks, all equally sweet, all have a different payload of calories. She give these drinks to her subjects. They take them home, they drink them. Their brains are measuring, their brains get to know them. And she invites them back into her lab to scan their brains as they're drinking each of these drinks. Now, before I tell you what happened, let's just think, well, what do we think is gonna happen? Is she gonna find that in terms of reward response, that all of those drinks are kind of equally awesome because they all are equally sweet and the brain just cares about calorie, uh, sweetness? Or is the brain gonna go, no, no, it's that 150 calorie drink I like best because the brain is wired to just always be on the lookout for more calories. Well, it turned out, only one of the drinks really got much of a brain response and it wasn't the 150 calorie drink. It was the one right in the middle, the 75 calorie drink. And it was just weird. It didn't make any sense. Hmm. It, it made so little sense that Dana Small did the experiment again and it happened again. So it just, this is not what was expected. So now she does a second experiment. She puts her subjects in something called an indirect calorimeter. This is a device that measures the thermic effect of food. So when you consume calories, your body starts to process those calories and that in itself creates heat. Well, you can measure that heat and that generally the more heat's being produced, the more calories that are consumed, vice versa, the more calories you consume, the more, the greater this thermic effect. So one day a female subject comes in and she drinks the 75 calorie drink and she gets in that indirect calorimeter and there's this beautiful little plume of heat, exactly what you'd expect. She comes in a few days later and she drinks the 150 calorie drink. You would expect more heat, more calories. There should be more heat. There's no heat. I mean, the metabolic response is absolutely flat. 
It's like this woman drank a cup full of air. And this really doesn't make sense because this is not what's in the physiology textbook. Something isn't making sense here. And then it dawns on Dana Small what is going on. And it comes back to that number 75 because she made all the drinks taste like they had 75 calories worth of sugar. But funnily enough, only one drink got this physiological response and got the brain responding. And that's the one that had 75 calories. So mm. that was the drink that was matched. The taste matched the calories. The taste predicted a certain calorie payload, and that's what arrived in the stomach. And when things are matched, things work beautifully. This tells us that the sensory information from food that we receive is not just this sort of frivolous hangover from a, a dark former age of sort of unenlightened dietary stupidity. It tells us that the sense information we gain from food is very important. It also tells us that accuracy matters because when that uh, taste score deviated from the nutritional score, mm-hmm. I mean, all hell broke loose. Like, like the, the, it wasn't, these drinks weren't metabolized. It's as though the, the brain just threw up its hand and said, I don't know what to do with this food because I, I, I just got thrown this curveball. Um, she did more experiments and it, it looks to be troubling as to what actually happens when people drink mismatched drinks. Um, you see things like glucose intolerance. She, she gave these drinks to adolescents This is important because adolescents drink a lot of sugary drinks and people think, well, they'd be way better off drinking artificially sweetened drinks. Mm -hmm. She had to stop that experiment early because they took blood samples and and they were looking pre-diabetic. So that's that's alarming. We got adolescents looking pre-diabetic. We can now take an extra step back and ask an even deeper question, though, because that was a a short-term exposure. Let's think, we, we talked about how the brain likes to measure we talked that the brain likes to control body weight. That so, And a lot of um, neuroscientists are talking about the brain as a kind of a prediction engine. That that's what the brain really excels at. It uses its sensed information about the world to create kind of a model representation of the world. So all your brain has, you know, let's forget about what we read about in diet, diet magazines and, and so forth. Your brain's relationship with food comes from what it senses. What it senses as it's eating, but also what it senses as food is being metabolized. Well, if we think of something like sweetness, Sweetness is a predictor of sweet calories, of of simple sugar calories. For not just the history of our species, but the history of all species, this has been a very reliable signal. Up until a handful of years ago, the sweeter something was, the more calories it contained. So the prediction that the sweet signal gave us was reliable. Then a handful of decades ago, just a blink of an eye in the history of our species, we changed that. We created artificial sweeteners. We created sugar alcohols. And now you've got a sweet signal that is chaotic, that on one day, a signal that is 200 calories, the next day could be zero, could be 20, could be 300. Now you're going to say, okay, so you're pinning this all in artificial sweeteners. That is just one technology that food processors and manufacturers use to manipulate the sensory signals in food. I also talked about fat replacers. This is an even more amazing story because uh, all of us are aware of artificial sweeteners. Everybody's heard of NutraSweet and Splenda. People know what sucralose is, aspartame. No one's heard of fat replacers. And the fat replacer industry has been very canny because they don't really let anybody know. You don't see this big sign on the front of it that says it's got this or that fat replacer in it. Um, they use uh, nice sounding language in the ingredient panels so that um, something like citrus fiber, you'll see something mm-hmm. called citrus fiber. Um, the industry... Um, the industry um, brand name for that is called Cream Fiber 7000. Um, there's another one called Simpless, 
which is a fat replacer that was originally created when um, a scientist tried to turn whey, which is left, you know, that liquid that's left over after making cheese mm-hmm. into a gelatin. This was in the late 70s. That came on the market in the 1980s as a um, an additive called Simpless. It, this is, when I say it's called Simpless, that's not what you or I would buy. That's what the food company buys when right. they add it to their salad dressing or their mayonnaise. Um, when you see that on the ingredient panel, it'll say something like, uh, milk protein or whey protein, which sounds, I mean, it sounds like it came from a farm. I mean, you see that, you just like, oh, it sounds like a, some kind of cheese mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, fat replacers are kind of like the equivalent of artificial sweeteners. They create this experience of rich fatty calories in the mouth, and they deliver just a dribble of calories in the gut. Well, this is a really good idea if it turns out your brain is stupid and it's just constantly on a hunt for calories. If it turns out your brain is smart and it likes to measure, this isn't such a good idea. So now we can ask this question, well, what happens when you take a smart brain that likes to predict and it doesn't get what it thought it was going to get? And there's a very big um, body of psychological research on this. The technical term for it is reward prediction error. There's a much uh, more common word, which is just uncertainty. And we know how brains react to uncertainty. They react with more motivation. And there's a really good reason for that, because if you take something really important like food, and it becomes a maybe. Well, in our evolutionary past, we weren't wired to stuff ourselves. But an uncertain, a maybe, that whispers the prospect, you might not get this. So we work extra hard to get that thing because if we don't get what we need, we could die. So um, this is across species. We respond to uncertainty with extra motivation. And when we look, like I said, at the brain scans of people with obesity, what do we see? We see extra motivation. So they have been goaded by this decaying sensory signal in the food supply, which is a fancy way of saying the taste of food just doesn't mean what it used to be. Um, We think that's a good idea because we're trying to fool our brains. We shouldn't be trying to do that. Our brains, the the part of our brain that eats, that measures food and predicts is much smarter than we think. And when we try to fool our brain, our brain knows it's being fooled and says, well, I'm going to make sure I don't get fooled. I'm going to eat extra just to be sure I get what I need. So, so interesting. You touched on so many great topics. I even had, uh, that's something that I did want to ask you was fat replacers. Then you already just touched on it. Um, And this goes for not just fat, but also sugar and things that taste sweet, but are not sugar and things that taste creamy and fatty, but are not necessarily fatty. It's basically, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, but we're just tricking our body and we're giving something that's not actually true. And when we are, let's just say, for example, if we are putting a sweet substance in our body, but it's not sugar, our body will continue to crave that sugar or crave that fat because we got something that wasn't that. So basically we're we're giving our body fake stuff and our body's like, wait, but I still crave the real stuff. And that way you actually continue to eat more. Is that yeah, true? It, it, yes, it's, it's, it's this whole, this, this condition of uncertainty of not being able to predict. Um, it's, it, it just, it engenders this response of wanting more. It's, it's almost like worry in a way. I'll, I'll give you an example because we all think this way. If the gas gauge in your car was unreliable, could say it's full, could say it's empty, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. Do you think you would fill up your car more often or less often? Oh, more, more often. More, because sure. you don't want to run a gas, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you probably, it would almost probably not, you'd be on the highway, you're like, geez, I don't know, like, I know I just filled up, you know, two hours ago, but like, 
it would kind of haunt you. This is the way we respond to uncertainty. It just it just goads us into extra motivation because it's the way we make sure disasters don't happen. And a disaster from an evolutionary point of view is a loss. You may have seen Wild Friends Nut Butter on Shark Tank years ago when they struck a deal with Barbara. Since then, their nut butter line has exploded into a booming business. Why? Simply because their nut butters are amazing. They have a wide range of different nut and seed butters made with simple, friendly ingredients, free from soy, gluten, dairy, natural flavors, or additives. Plus, they're non-GMO and certified palm oil free. My personal favorite is their classic creamy almond butter made from just roasted almonds and sea salt, nothing else. And the texture is velvety smooth that you can literally drizzle over any smoothie, sliced apple, or even just enjoy by the spoon. I even enjoy pairing it with carrots. I know it sounds weird, but carrots and almond butter, you have to try it. Wild Friends was founded by Keely and Erica, two best friends who love nut butter. When you shop with Wild Friends, you're not only supporting a small female-run business, you're also supporting the Wild Friends Give Back mission. 1% of all sales are donated to organizations that help ensure women and girls have the environment and empowerment to make their dreams a reality. If you want to support and experience this luscious, creamy nut butter yourself, head on over to wildfriendsfoods.com. That's wildfriendsfoods.com. Now, I do want to just touch one more thing. Like on, on the fat replacers, now are gums considered a fat replacer? You'll see so like this, locust bean no, gum no, and things like that. This is a great question. Um, yes and no. Uh, these, there's a, it's kind of, a, it's very difficult when you see things like carrageenan or, or this or that kind of a gum, xanthan gum used. You don't really know in what capacity it's being used for what effect. I tend to, to think the answer is probably yes. There's a reason they're doing this. Um, when you look at the, Industry brochures in the country uh, on the um, the companies that make these things. What we see is carrageenan and can refer to a whole host of different products that have different effects on food. Um, so it's very difficult to know. In fact, you can't really tell by looking at the ingredient panel exactly what this ingredient is doing. You just know that this was used in some way to do something. Um, so things to look for would be things like gums, um, stabilizers, um, Certain fibers can be fat replacers. It doesn't sound like you think fiber, you think, well, that's mm -hmm. like, you know, good for your digestion and stuff. But fibers can be used as fat replacers. So it's it's actually really difficult. I think, you know, a dead giveaway will be if it says something like light or diet. Right. That's a good indication that some of these things, but, but here's the thing. They're putting these things in, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, you'd have fat replacers in things like diet mayonnaise or light mayonnaise or diet salad dressings. Now they're putting them in everything because everybody just wants to bring the calorie count down. And they think, okay, well, we'll just put the fat replacer and people won't know any better. And you look, at the, you look at the nutritional info panel, you look at calories and people don't realize what's there. Yeah, and it's interesting that, first of all, I do know that, you know, back in like the 80s and things, they had even had like low fat peanut butter, right? But to replace the fat that they took out, they added sugar. 
you know, yeah. and they, they did that. So the, maybe the fat content was down, but the sugar content just went through the roof. That's one. And also, as you mentioned, they're putting all these things in more foods now than ever, not just diet foods. And interestingly enough, Americans are getting more and more obese and more than ever. So <laughs> it kind of correlates and it's very interesting to see that happening. Yeah, and it's interesting that the further we get away from what I would think of as just eating real food, the more we tend to have faith that technology is going to save us somehow. Uh, when it seems to me, it's almost staring us right in the face, um, eat real food. Uh, when you look yeah. at the cultures that value and revere real food, the two best examples are Italy. Best example for me is Italy, but also Japan. South Korea is another great example. Um, these people eat incredibly good food. They revere real food. They you know, they, they give um, the appellations that they come from are guarded. They, they have rules about these things. These people eat amazing food and they're very trim. Mm -hmm. um, whereas we continually uh, process our food and add more things to it. And the food we eat is increasingly becoming kind of a, kind of a weird imitation of food. Yeah, I agree. And also I just want to add too, I've noticed that people like in Italy, for example, they'll take time to eat. They don't just, you know, eat something in a couple of minutes, you know, driving uh, in the car on a subway, they'll spend an hour at lunch, you know, and just gradually enjoy their food, talk. And uh, I think that plays a huge role as well because it makes makes you slow down and it makes your body really recognize what you're eating. Yeah, it's a great point. And one of the strangest facts I came across in researching this book was that if you look at the Italians and the French, they eat far fewer calories on average than Americans do, and yet it takes them twice as long to eat it, which it's, it, it just seems almost hard to comprehend. How do you eat less food and it takes you more time? It's like they're chewing slowly, but it, it's, it's exactly as you say. Eating for them is it's a conscious experience that's enjoyed. Uh, they tend to value eating with people, not in front of the TV, not in the mm -hmm. car. And I think this, again, though, gets back to craving. Um, there, you know, there's um, there's two different reward circuits in the brain. There's the motivation circuit. That's mediated by dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter a lot of people have heard of. Everybody thinks it's the pleasure neurotransmitter. It's not. Hmm. It's the motivation transmitter. It's it's about craving. It's about desire. Then there's this, um, this real actual pleasure network, which is mediated by opioid neurotransmitters. And this is about this indulgent experience of enjoying the food that you eat. This is not about shoving food in your mouth, about trying to eat quickly. This is the reverse. This is this is that meal that you reflect upon. You think back to that meal you had, you know, on, on a, a friend's backyard years ago or a meal you had on your honeymoon in France or Italy. Um, th that's a different, it's a different part of your brain that you're, that you're working, literally. And it's, um, it's a much better way to eat. Uh, but it's one that we've grown very far away from here. Th this whole idea that you can sort of eat, I think, as you're in the car tells us so much about how far, like the fact that we think that that's normal. I, I, it's interesting too, I remember traveling to Italy, um, you know, they have these little coffee shops and everybody's at the bar having the little espressos. They don't get it to go in a cup and walk down the street mindlessly sipping. They say, no, no, if you're gonna have a coffee, stop what you're doing and, and enjoy the coffee and then get on with your day. And it seems kind of like antique and funny almost, but I think they have a very good point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, now, what are some ways to help curb cravings. Like, you know, now we, we kind of have an idea of what's happening, but how can we, how can someone uh, overcome that? 
So I want to talk to you about an experience I had. Um, I went to, uh, I visited a woman in Germany. Her name is Anya Hilbert. She's a scientist and she deals with some of the worst uh, cases of disordered eating in Germany. Um, and she talks about these two pleasure networks. There's the desire network and then there's the actual pleasure network. And, and she brought me through some of her, her therapy that really brought this to life to me and really made me understand the effect that food has on us. So the first thing she did, she sat me down and she gave me a bag of potato chips, cheese and onion flavor. She said, look at the chips, look at the bag, feel how puffy it is. It's nice and it's all there, that air inside. It's nice and puffy to hold. There's that the picture on it. And he said, open it. And there's this, it makes this little pop. And all of a sudden there's this whoosh of aroma. She said, smell that, inhale it. And she said, take two chips out. She said, look at them, look at each one, sniff them. She said, I could nibble them just a tiny bit, but I couldn't eat them. And then she said, rub them together. And I was absolutely consumed by desire to eat these chips. It was almost to the point that was made me angry, frustrated, I was on edge. And then she said, throw those chips in the garbage, which I was like, I can't throw these out, but I did. And, and then I brought out two new, even more pristine, more beautiful looking chips. And the desire, the craving just, it crested like a wave. It was painful, it was a painful state. And I'm not somebody who typically has difficulty with eating. I'm one of the very lucky people who's got like a low BMI and um, so forth, but I really, understood the power that certain foods have over us, that this, this just unquenchable desire I had just to put these chips in my mouth. Well, then that was done with. And then she said, we're now going to kind of ignite this other circuit in the reward system. And this is the liking circuit. This is actual pleasure. And she took just this little square of dark chocolate and she said, and it had this little biscuit center. And she said, I just want you to put it in your mouth and just, just, just let the warmth of your body start to melt. She said, you can close your eyes. And at first it didn't do much. And I thought, okay, there's not much happening here. And then there was just the, this, it just started to give way. It just started to, you could feel it kind of move as it, as it started to melt and this drop of chocolate landed on my tongue. And then it sort of like started to pool and spread. And I was just enveloped in this kind of blanket of coconuts. And it was just like, it was so delicious. And I just kind of, instead of being all hopped up and anxious, I, I was relaxed. It's like I was the mm -hmm. passenger on this journey that the chocolate was taking me on. Instead of things happening quickly, they slowed down. And then it's like, I remembered, oh, wait, there's this biscuit center. And I thought it'd all be kind of like, um, you know, saturated, but it was still crunchy and it was just so satisfying to, to crunch. And then I swallowed it and I was like, I was like, wow, that was amazing. And she said, just think of all the pleasure that tiny little chocolate gave you. But, but here's what's interesting is she has patients with binge eating disorder, which I think really, uh, that disorder in particular really illustrates the degree to which this is this is being this is motivation because people with binge eating they they will eat to the point of being in physical pain mm. they will talk about the fact that they're not enjoying that they just have this compulsion to eat well when they get this compulsion to literally stuff themselves she says eat one of these very fine chocolates and she has found that, that this very fine chocolate can can extinguish this craving um i spoke to one of her patients um who had binge eating disorder and she said that what really worked for her was dark chocolate in mm. particular, she, she said at first she didn't like it. It was bitter, but she got used to it. And then she started to like it. And then one day she tried milk chocolate again. She said, I can't believe I ever ate it. It, was, it just tasted so sickly sweet to her. But she said the other thing with dark chocolate is you can't eat it too quickly. It's just it's, it's like there's this this governor built in. It just it just won't let you eat it quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think I think we have to all get better at, at understanding the effects that certain foods have on us, that some foods just lock us into this desire to keep eating. I think potato chips are a great example. We all eat them. We all know that once you have one, you can't really stop. But no one's ever stopped and said, you know, I, I remember this bag of chips I had in California, 1993. We never have memories <laughs> like that, right? But you do, but you might have that, but like a 
steak or a glass of wine or an amazing peach right. that you picked in a friend's backyard, but never about foods like that. And then there are some foods that truly do pleasure us, uh, that these are the foods that you'd want to share with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important if you can understand the way food affects you, you can start to avoid the ones that take you to a bad place and focus on the ones that take you to a good place. I think on a more sensible level too, just stop trying to fool your brain with um, these processed foods that are are delivering you know, sensory information that does not match what winds up in your gut. Yeah, well, and I just know too, just from you know, Doritos, potato chips, just different things that are so so processed. I know companies actually put these chemicals, these flavorings, to make them addictive, and so we do actually crave them, and we become addicted to them as opposed to just real food. And also, we're not satiated. You know, if you're eating real fat as opposed to a fat replacer, I know that you're going to feel satiated from the real thing versus a replacer. (laughs) Well, the other thing too is a question we rarely ask is how you feel after a meal. Because sometimes you're you're eating something and in that moment you want to eat the next one, but then how do you feel afterwards? So what I often find with, with junk food is you feel like crap after you eat it. Well, you're not supposed to feel bad after you eat food. Food is meant to be nourishing. It's meant to be good Mm -hmm. for you. So what I often tell people is is hold on to that feeling because the next time you have a craving to eat that bad thing, remember how lousy it made you feel the time before. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you really, you know, grasp that memory, that can help you avoid making the same mistake in the future. That's a great tip. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, and so any other kind of tips that you can give to someone if they're like, man, I just, I just can't, I can't stop or I just continue to, to eat and, you know, or I'm just so addicted. Like what are some maybe baby steps that someone could take um, to go in the right direction? Well, I would say try and find something like dark chocolate. If you haven't tried dark chocolate, try it and maybe say to yourself, okay, I'm not, I might not like this the first time, but give yourself mm-hmm. a chance. I think a very good rule of thumb as far as what to eat and what to avoid is, is just ask a simple question. Does this taste like what it is? You know, people are stressing this, like, what does this guy mean? I mean, does this taste like what it actually is? So a peach tastes like a peach, and it is a peach. But if you look at something like a soft drink, an orange-flavored soft drink, it tastes like orange. Is it orange? No, it just has an orange flavoring. It doesn't mm-hmm. have the antioxidants that orange has, it doesn't have the vitamins, it doesn't have the fiber. So ask yourself a simple question. Look for ingredients. Um, it's, you know, you can start to spot some of the fat replacers if you know what to look for. Um, be very wary of foods with artificial sweeteners, especially ones that mix them with sugar. That seems to be the worst. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, I think long ingredients lists, are, it, it's, a, it's a warning that there's more going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think the important, the other important thing is that we've been taught to be afraid of pleasure. Um, that we think if something tastes good, we should spit it out. Well, I think that's true for ultra-processed foods, but I think real foods that taste good, um, there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, Eating is meant to be pleasurable by design. Food is meant to be nourishing. So look at each meal as an opportunity to enjoy yourself, to enjoy what what nature has given us. And and we can have a great relationship with food. We know it's possible. We just have to get back there. But this idea that you're going to kind of you know, have this iron will and and forego the pleasures of eating for the rest of your life. I just, I think for the vast majority of people, it's just not sustainable. Well, yeah. And food, like you said, food is meant to be pleasurable and enjoyed, right? That's, that's a lot of people get happiness from it. And that, so um, I think also the key here is to, if you have your favorite foods or is to not completely abstain from them. Like for example, for me, I have chocolate every single day. And I actually typically have it in the morning 
I have it with my coffee and I enjoy it. It's dark chocolate. There's actually no sugar in it, but if you can eat some sugar, you know, if you want, but I just prefer no sugar. And I have that in the morning and I also have it, you know, a little um, with lunch. And by the end of the night, I don't actually have sweet cravings because I'm like, oh, I had chocolate earlier today. I don't really crave it. Um, and that's just an example of, you know, something in my life. But to the to anyone that doesn't want to really abstain from something, make sure that you do allow yourself to have it. Just, you know, don't eat an entire, you know, two bars of chocolate or something. You know what I mean? So No, um, I, absolutely. It's the, yeah. it's the dose that makes the poison. Yeah. And um, also, I think you just also mentioned going back to whole foods, just real food, you know, um, and not... Not trying to eat something that's mimicking something else. Plain and yeah. simple. And I think processed food. You, you, you know, one of the also things that was eye opening is that there's certain things they'll use in processed foods, things like stabilizers and emulsifiers. They're not literally trying to fool you when they put those in, but they also have the same effect. Things like modified starches, um, stabilizers, emulsifiers. These are things that can also conf- that, that I think create this this gulf between perceived calories and actual calories. So I, I think just the more processed food tends to be, the more we should probably avoid it if possible. Um, the other thing is learn to cook. Um, I guess some people are frightened by it. I find it one of the most satisfying things. There's nothing better than cooking for your spouse, your mate, your kids, your family. Um, and it really cements the relationship. And the other thing to recognize, if you're not big on cooking, you're probably going to screw up. That's okay. That's how you learn to cook is by, by making mistakes. Um, uh, but the more you do it, the better you get and the more you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Plus, no, I, you also save so much money. So much money. And you really, um, I feel like you can really control what you're cooking or you're baking. Like if, let's say you are baking a piece of bread um, and you want a sweet bread, maybe you don't add a lot of sugar to that bread, but then with each slice, you drizzle some honey on it, you know, and you can alter the sweetness with each slice. Um, just different things like that are, yeah. are really helpful. Yeah, I agree. So, um, well, thank you so much, Mark, for just coming on here and sharing everything. Now, where where can people find you? Or where can they get your book, The End of Craving, and all that good stuff? So the book is in bookstores. It's it's on Amazon, easy to order on Amazon. I'm on uh, Twitter. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. I'm not all that active on social media, but if anybody ever wants to reach out, um, I have a website, markshasker.com, so... Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that we put all those uh, links in today's show notes so that everyone can access them and get your book. And um, thank you again so much. This was so enlightening. I hope everyone, I know everyone will um, benefit from this episode for sure. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Digest This. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let us know. If you're ever wondering how you can support me and this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family is the best way. This is a resonant media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Chris McComb. To email the show, message us at digestthispod at gmail.com. See you next time. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. As always, talk to your doctor or health team first.